Hey everyone, it's Allegra. Two things. When we recorded this episode, we had an issue with my microphone, which we didn't know about until we listened to the recording later. So there are a few pieces of me that I'm going to re-record, and so I don't want you to think it sounds weird. And also I'm going to add something at the end because I've actually seen the Captain Marvel movie since we recorded the initial episode. So there's no spoilers, but I did want to let you know how totally awesome. I think it is. So thanks for listening. And we can't wait to hear what you think about Marvel in space. Welcome to this episode of Profess Hers, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature all discussed through the perspective of women's issues and feminism. Are you excited? I actually kind of am. Really? A little bit. Why? Uh, because I... I'm afraid now. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I was randomly having a conversation with somebody earlier, and the topic of Captain Marvel came up. You know, I didn't bring it up. And what she was saying was, she's excited about this movie because it's the first time that she can remember a superhero woman getting to be a captain. And so if regular, everyday people are in their lives excited about this, then I can get excited about it too. So we're going to talk about Marvel movies in space, which includes Guardians of the Galaxy, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and of course, Captain Marvel. So Guardians of the Galaxy. Is that the one with the little tree that walks around? So Guardians of the Galaxy is from 2014, and it actually had the MCU's first female co-writer. The movie was written by James Gunn, who also directed it, and was co-written by Nicole Perlman. So we've got a female writer in the MCU in 2014. We also had a lot of females working on special effects. We had costume and casting directors. So there were several women behind the scenes, as well as in front of the camera. And of course, that's a trend we're going to thankfully see picked back up in Captain Marvel in 2019. So there's something special about space movies, and this isn't just true about space movies in Marvel or comic book space movies or the MCU. This is really true for all movies in space. They are usually pretty important because of their treatment of race and their allegorical treatment of race. Because there are blue people and pink humanoids and human aliens and different races of people and different planets and cultures. And in these movies, we see people teaming up and dating and coexisting. And so in that way, it's kind of an aspirational treatment of the topic of race. But also these movies sometimes feature wars between races or war wars between worlds. And so that can be a kind of commentary on modern or historical issues having to deal with race and culture. So this movie is no different. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy has lots of different types of people, lots of different races of people and cultures. And so we see how they coexist in a kind of aspirational way. And then we see how some people uh, one of the villains from this movie, for instance, is Ronan, and he wants to destroy the world of Xandar because 
it's somehow in competition with his people and his culture. So um, I think that that makes space movies particularly important. And of course, we see the same kind of thing in Star Trek and in Star Wars. I mean, if I'm thinking of Star Trek specifically, um, it it's literal treatment of race. So we had people of different races, like Asian and African-American members of the crew. And then it's allegorical treatment of race when they encountered different kinds of people or different alien races. So I think that makes space movies a little bit special. And it's worth talking about because Guardians of the Galaxy definitely fits into that. Okay, that's an interesting... I didn't know that about space movies. So maybe you like science fiction now. Let's not jump the gun. (laughs) So friendship is a major theme for both Guardians of the Galaxy movies, which I think is kind of rare for action movies. There are lots of action movies, I think, that have like a buddy cop scenario, but friendship and developing friendships and different kinds of friendships, they are all explored kind of in depth in these movies. And I think that that makes them a little special. They're more emotional and they're less action exclusive. There's still lots of stuff blowing up. There's still action and fighting. But I mean, Peter has a very complex emotional backstory, even though it has a lot to do with his dead mom who kind of gets put in a fridge at the very beginning. Rocket was the he's the raccoon he was an unwilling subject of physical uh, and genetic experimentation and so he kind of gets bullied and picked on and he gets emotional about it at one point in the movie and kind of says that he's tired of being bullied and he's a very tough character but he does eventually kind of express emotion when he's talking about the way he gets treated and he's like a cgi character right yes that's fine. I, I would think of like a CGI character as just being like a sidekick or like a joke or. And so we have a lot of male characters who are not or who are less afraid to discuss their feelings, even with each other. So a man talking to another man about their feelings. And I think that kind of helps to soften the gender role barriers that we might expect to see in a movie and that we really probably expect to see in an action movie. And that is just thinking about the friendships between the men. When we talk about the relationships that the characters have, all of them, including the females, friendship is a major theme. And they start the movie as enemies and they learn to trust each other and be vulnerable with each other and um, have these honest conversations. Gamora is the main female character in the movie, and she's a genuinely strong, smart female character. She has agency and purpose. And even though she eventually becomes Peter's love interest or they become romantically involved, she's not there to serve as his love interest. She's not there just to develop his character. She has her own motives and her own purpose. Uh, She's played by Zoe Saldana, and she's definitely the most skilled fighter Uh, in the film in terms of like hand-to-hand combat. She has a very complex backstory and she's not motivated by her love interest. The movie is not about her trying to win Peter's heart or Peter trying to get her to like him. Um, In fact, there's a, I mean, the whole story with her and her sister is what's motivating her actions. And so it's really interesting that she has this kind of this sense of agency. She's doing what she's doing for her own reasons, not just in service of the men or their plot lines. So and she's fact, a wholly separate person outside of just the love interest role. Correct. 
There's actually a really funny, cute scene with Gamora and Peter. Peter likes Earth music, and that's a major motif in the movie, is the music that he listens to is like 70s and 80s music. And so he's always trying to get her to listen to music because he likes Earth music. And Gamora is like a kind of more serious focused person and so she's doesn't really listen to music and she's not really I mean they make a joke about there are two types of people in the world people who dance and people who don't dance and the assumption is Peter is the kind of person who dances and Gamora is the kind of person who doesn't and so he kind of gets her to listen to music and she says the melody is quite pleasing and she kind of gets her to start dancing with him and then she stops and she says I'm not some starry-eyed waif who will succumb to your pelvic sorcery which I think is just kind of a funny line. Um, she does eventually fall in love with him, but again, she always has her own story and she always has her own motives. So yeah, we do have women in the refrigerator several times in the movie, but they all protect each other throughout the movie, sometimes reluctantly. And so I do think it's important to note that it, this kind of feminist theme of friendship and these uh, men ex from, like comfortable expressing their emotions is constant throughout the movie. And I would also say it's kind of a deconstruction of toxic masculinity. Several characters start the movie with this kind of tough guy bravado with a hyper competitiveness. Um, some of them are womanizing. There's a scene at the beginning where Chris Pratt character, Chris Pratt's character has a lady on his ship who's it's clearly like the next morning and she, he doesn't remember her name and uh, and, and there are several male characters who are aggressive and they kind of learn to be vulnerable and honest. Um, they learn to trust each other. They learn to discuss their feelings and their fears. Again, Rocket is has a very tough bravado and he is a very funny character. And he's emotionally and physically scarred, and he explores that. Peter grieves for his mom. He wonders about who his dad is. Drax talks about his wife and child. They all risk their lives for each other, and at least two of them cry in the movie. Two of the male characters cry in the movie, non-ironically, and not in a way where we're supposed to make fun of them or think it's stupid that they're crying. It's a very um, emotional moment. So again, I think those are kind of feminist ideas, even if they're not scoring a lot of points for female representation in terms of screen time. And even um, though we have all of these women in refrigerators. I do think that there are some real feminist ideas in the movie. And I mean, I don't know that there's, a, it's a coincidence that the female, one of the women, one of the writers was a woman as well. There's a port on a western bay and it so Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is from 2017. Uh, on this film, there are no female directors or writers. Same director as the first movie, James Gunn, but no female writers on this movie. And I know I just mentioned that at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy 1, that they kind of deconstruct toxic masculinity. But the next movie kind of begins with uh, the whole team almost dying because Peter and Rocket have this ego contest about who should pilot their ship. And so they keep taking control back from each other and fighting over who should be in charge. No, I'm a better pilot. No, I'm a better pilot. And so that, I mean, that wrecks their ship and it almost kills everyone. And so I feel like we kind of fell right back into toxic masculinity. And then this movie, again, kind of deconstructs it as they have some emotional development. So that kind of gets on my nerves. 
So you feel like the growth and evolution from movie one yes. did not carry over to movie two. It's repeated. Yeah. They have the exact same growth and evolution. Yes. Okay. But it's not continual growth right. and evolution. Friendships between the members of the Guardians of the Galaxy, Drax and Mantis, develop a friendship. Rocket and Yondu develop a friendship, uh, and that's kind of an unlikely pairing. But Yondu is the is Peter's kind of adopted dad, and both Rocket and Yondu uh, explore very in depth actually this idea that they that the masculine, aggressive, tough guy shell that they are uh, using on the exterior is covering up very sensitive emotions on the inside and they talk about it they admit it to each other and they say like you act like you're tough but really it's because you're the most sensitive and I know that because I'm the same way too and that is an amazing conversation to have two male uh, characters have with one another because it's not typical for males to express emotions that way. And again, we're kind of softening those gender role boundaries. Yondu eventually sacrifices himself for his adopted son. He dies to save Peter. And um, so these characters have complex motives and they're not easy to pigeonhole. We There's no like, t- you know, easy to define stereotype tough action guy. The female characters are still driving their own plot lines too. Nebula escapes to find and kill her sister. Mantis has these powers as an empath, like she can control people's emotions and she really only uses those powers for good. She's kind, she's loyal, um, and she's funny. So in terms of screen time, Guardians of the Galaxy is 33% female, 41 minutes out of two hours. Uh, Gamora is 31 minutes of that. Nebula is four minutes. Nova Prime is two minutes. Guardians of the Galaxy 2, that's 37% female. So got a little bit better. 50 minutes out of two hours and 16 minutes uh, female on screen. Gamora for 24. Mantis for 11 minutes. Nebula for 10 minutes. And of course, in both of those movies, we have female characters for 30 seconds a minute. Um, So... About 33 to 37% for those movies, which is better than some of the movies we talked about before, but still not ideal, obviously. Because we are going to talk about Captain Marvel and the great representation we get in those movies, we're first going to talk a little bit about female pilots and females in aviation. And I think it's important to talk about because Captain Marvel is not just a girl who gets bitten by a radioactive spider or someone from an alien planet with superheroes, but Carol Danvers starts the movie as a female pilot in the Air Force. And I I would like to talk about real life female pilots and how we kind of get to the place where a woman in the 90s because the movie takes place in the 90s and I'm sure I'm going to mention that about a hundred times because you know I love the 90s but how we get to a place where a woman or a female character in the 90s can be a female pilot 
can be flying in combat missions, can have a best friend who's also a female pilot. Uh, I think that's great representation for a lot of reasons, but I also think it's important to kind of explore the history because we haven't always had female pilots and we definitely have not always had female pilots flying in combat missions or female pilots flying jets. So I think that that's uh, an important thing to talk about. A few women in early aviation history, E. Lillian Todd, designed and built aircraft in 1906. Helen Ritchie became the first woman pilot for a U.S. commercial airline in 1934. And, I mean, if I have to guess, I'm gonna guess that Misty has some history she wants to tell us about. So I want to talk to you about a group that formed in World War II called the Wasp. They're the, like, Ant-Man and the Wasp? No. Oh. These are the Women's Air Force Service Pilots. Sounds kind of like the Wasp. Maybe. I don't know anything about that. That's right. All right. So in 1941, any man that basically had any kind of flight training whatsoever, even if it's just crop dusting. Okay. We're drafting them because we need them to go fight, which unfortunately means we have a shortage of pilots stateside. So we hired farmers to fight in the military? Kind of, yes. <laughs> because they could fly a plane. Because they could fly. And training a pilot is expensive. It's time consuming. So if you already have some flight experience and you're at all reasonably healthy, congratulations. We're sending you to Europe or Asia. Exactly. Okay. So we have this shortage of pilots and we need to find a way to fill it. There are plans in 1941 and 1942 that get combined. And that's going to produce the WASP, the Women's Air Service Pilots. So these are going to be women who fill the shortages that we have in pilots, but not in combat missions. Okay, so they flew domestic missions? They flew domestic. They would ship freight. Uh, they would help get troops from point A to point B. They also did simulations. And eventually, they're going to train young male pilots for combat. But they themselves were not in combat. So they couldn't fight in a combat situation. Let's talk about that. Because, because we were afraid their uteruses were going to fall out? Kind of. Oh, my God. So if you have a woman in a combat situation, she's flying a plane, she's getting shot at by the enemy, what's going to happen? She's going to use expert training and smart thinking no, to no, maneuver No, no, she's going to cry. She's going to cry. <laughs> and so her crying is going to get her shot or crash the plane, or she's going to immediately land and surrender. Uh, of course. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so we can't put women in combat. But we can have them fill in all of these domestic flight missions. And they do. So we had about 5,000 women. But they can train people to fly in combat missions. Yes. And we'll talk about that more here in a second. Uh, so originally we had 5,000 applied. Eventually that's going to make it all the way up to 25,000 women that apply. But only about 1,000 complete the training to become a WASP. Let me guess. They were all white ladies? Mostly. Yes. And that was pure coincidence? So the thing is, these were not technically members of the military. Right. Uh, we would, to use a modern phrase, call them contractors. Okay. So civilian contractors. All yes. right. So they had to pay for their own training, their own room and board, and their own uniforms. Their uniforms? Mm -hmm. So basically, th they did get a paycheck from doing this, but a lot of them are doing There's it. There's a lot of upfront cost. Yes. So we're talking about So you're eliminating some people who would like to have participated. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a very low group of people even that can do this. And this uh, 
program is going to end up being over 120 different air bases. Uh, they're going to fly thousands and thousands and thousands of missions. They do a fantastic job. They're a really important part of our program. But I want to talk to you all about training young male pilots. Okay. So if you're going to train a pilot for combat, yeah, one of the things you have to train him for is to shoot targets. Sure. So a WAFS would take off in her plane with targets tied on the back. And then a young, barely I don't understand. You can get shot at in a training mission. We'll we'll trust them not to have emotional breakdowns. Because it's friendly fire. This seems like it's exploit them when it's convenient, but we don't want to give them anything real to do because we don't want to, like, admit it. Okay. Yeah. So the idea was that these women would understand that they weren't actually being shot at. So they could keep their emotions in check. But they were being shot at. They were being shot at. Just, they weren't trying to hit the women. They're trying to hit the targets. But these are untrained pilots. Right. And they don't always hit the target. Don't tell me. So during the course of the WASP. Don't tell me. We have 38 women who are killed. Either flying missions that have accidents or more often from these kind of training missions. Now, here's the really, really, really bad part. Because these are contractors. They were barred from having Shut military up. funerals. So they couldn't have taps played. They can't have the flag draped over the coffin. And in fact, the Air Force even... They died training combat pilots for World War II, and we couldn't give them a military funeral. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Worse than that, even, the military wouldn't pay to transport their bodies back home. Shut up! Yeah, so other members of the WASP would, like, pass around a hat when anybody died to get their body back to their family to be buried i know it's horrible it's horrible all right so in 1944 when the program is disbanded the they immediately recognize their service some people in the air force tried to so commanding general henry arnold uh, also known as hap (laughs) is going to go to congress and he is going to ask that the wasp be designated as members of the u.s military unfortunately Male pilots lobbied Congress to deny him that request. What? Uh, Male pilots thought that if these women got recognized for what they did. Oh, you're taking something away from me. Mm -hmm. I'm a special male pilot. Yeah, so it's either going to reduce the prestige they have as being pilots. Because a lady doing your job would take away the prestige of what you're doing. Because it means it's a girl job. Oh, for... Or... It would open the door for more women pilots in the future and would take away jobs from future men. It's frustrating. So these women are not granted military classification, which means no GI benefits, uh, no medical care, no insurance, no money for school. Which means they didn't get help buying a house. They didn't get help going to college. Um, They also didn't get gold stars in their families. So those women that died, if you had a son that died in combat or even a training mission, your family would get a gold star. Mm -hmm. They their families couldn't get those. So they're denied every military benefit. All right. So this program becomes classified. These women can't even really talk about their experiences until the 1970s. 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 So there is this perception in our country, because this program is not talked about, that women can't be pilots. For sure they can't be combat pilots. We've never had women pilots. And that's just not true. Right. We've had them. We had them. We just can't talk about them. So as soon as it's declassified, these women start again lobbying to get their work recognized, which they should have. And in 1977, Jimmy Carter 
is going to sign a bill that acknowledges some of what they did in World War II. Some of. Not all, but some of. In 2002, WASPs are finally granted military funeral honors. But the problem is that most of them have already died. on. Yes. And then eventually they're going to get the Congressional Gold Medal, which is awarded to individuals or groups perform outstanding deeds or service to the security, prosperity, and national interest of the United States. And when did they get that? They got that under Obama. So, you know, right on time. <sighs> Missy, why do you tell me these stories? So, it is a sad-ish story. I mean, it's it's awesome what they did. It's awesome what they did. And I think it's awesome that they continued to lobby until the 2000s. Yeah, they didn't give up. And they finally got recognized. But more important than any of that, in the 1970s, when this program started to be talked about and started to be studied, the women behind them entering the Air Force could point to it and say, we have precedent for women pilots. I want to be a pilot, too. And we did start training female pilots in the military in the 70s. In the 70s and early 80s, women started seeing those doors open. And then in the 90s, were able to fly in combat missions. Yes. Which we're going to talk about. Because I have cheerful things to say. (laughs) Sorry. (sighs) Okay, so I've got some good news. All right. And really, in the last few decades, the number of women involved in the aviation industry has steadily increased. We've always had women involved in aviation in terms of flight attendants, but the number of women involved in all of the jobs in aviation has been steadily increasing. And women women can be found in nearly every aviation job available today. But the numbers are small, comparatively. Women pilots are 6% of the total pilot population. And so that includes private, personal, commercial, and military. In 1994, Women in Aviation International was established as a professional nonprofit organization to address the needs to develop more women in the aviation industry. So they serve as a kind of support group and mentors and advisors to get women interested and and to keep women in aviation. So a few women in more recent history. Lieutenant General Stacy Harris is the highest ranking African American woman military pilot in all of the United States Armed Forces. She's the Assistant Vice Chief of Staff and Director at the Air Staff Headquarters in the U.S. Air Force in Washington, D.C. She's logged more than 2,500 hours in military aircraft. Lieutenant Colonel Eileen Collins, later Colonel Eileen Collins, was selected by NASA as an astronaut in 1990. In February 1995, she was the first female to pilot a shuttle mission. So she graduated from the Air Force Academy, or the, I'm sorry, from the Air Force Undergraduate Pilot Training in 1979, which is about the time that the work of the WASPs was being revealed and being well known. It was also kind of the time when women were being allowed to enter um, aviation jobs in the military. So she became a training pilot. She uh, eventually became the first woman to pilot a space shuttle. Bonnie Taberzi Caputo was hired at age 24 as an American Airlines pilot in March of 1973, and she was the first woman hired by a major airline as a member of the cockpit crew. She flew as a flight engineer, a first officer, and a captain, and 
she retired in 1998, but her her pilot uniform, Bonnie Caputo's pilot uniform, is on display at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., because she was hired, the first woman hired by a major airline as a member of the cockpit crew. So I think that's a pretty cool accomplishment. So Martha McSally, she's now a senator from Arizona. She was in the Air Force from 1988 to 2010, and during that time rose to the rank of colonel before she retired from the military. She was one of the highest ranking female pilots in the history of the Air Force. She was the first American woman to fly in combat um, after the 1991 rule that allowed female pilots to fly in combat. And she was the first female commander of a United States Air Force fighter squadron. There's a lot of things interesting about her career, including how she retired from the military and became an elected public official. So just this week during the Senate Armed Services Committee hearing about preventing sexual assault in the military, which as we know is a pervasive problem, she was serving as a member of that committee and Senator McSally revealed that a superior officer in the Air Force sexually assaulted her. Um, I believe her words were, he preyed upon and then raped her. She said, I thought I was strong, but felt powerless. The perpetrators abused their position of power in profound ways. Um, In this discussion, she said that she was proud of her military service, but felt betrayed over the assault. And she is determined to help find a solution. And so it's a very powerful testimony. And of course, this is something that people have been talking about a lot is protecting members of the armed services from sexual assault. She said she didn't immediately report the attacks because she didn't trust the system at the time. And later, when she began talking about them, she said she was so horrified about how her account was handled that she thought about quitting the Air Force. She said, I decided to stay and continue to serve and fight and lead to be a voice from within the ranks for women and then in the House and now the Senate. It's personal from two perspectives, as a commander who led my airmen into combat and as a survivor of rape and betrayal. She says she considers sexual assault in the military to be a national security threat and that during this hearing, she was attempting to give her perspective as a commander and a survivor and to give hope to others. So she um, has this historic, remarkable career as a pilot, and she is doing remarkable things on behalf of other women and other victims of sexual assault in the military. In 1991, July 31st, 1991, which, by the way, was my ninth birthday, the United States Senate voted overwhelmingly to allow American military women to fly aircraft in combat situations. And so as soon as they did that, McSally began to fly in combat missions. 1993 was also a big year for women in aviation. Jeannie Flynn becomes the first fighter pilot in the Air Force, the U.S. Air Force. Barbara Harmer of England becomes the first woman to fly a supersonic airline jet. And Matisse Wright becomes the first African-American female flight officer in the United States Navy. And so I'm talking about the 90s, of course, because that is when Captain Marvel is set. And that is an important time period to kind of set us up for the context of the events of Captain Marvel. Okay, so tell me about Captain Marvel. It has the third highest pre-sale rate of any MCU movie. Black Panther leads that. And so that's movies, or that's tickets bought before the movie is released. And that's actually a few days old, so it might have jumped up to number two. Captain Marvel has set the record on Fandango. It's the best-selling pre-release film 
it beat Avengers Infinity War. And to compare it to the most recent other comic book movie, which is Aquaman, and of course Aquaman is DC, it's not Marvel, but it's the most recent comic book movie, it outsold pre-sale tickets for Aquaman as well. Of course, it's coming out on International Women's Day, which is March 8th, 2019. And I don't think that's a coincidence. That's the same day that this podcast is coming out. And before the movie's release, before anybody really knows what happens in the movie, there, of course, are controversies. The first controversy is the smile controversy. And I'm sure if I just tell you that it's a smile controversy, you can probably guess that it has to do with women being asked to smile. In fact, what it <laughs> people think that she should be smiling more in the previews and the promotional materials for the movie. So we've got posters that come out and then trailers and people think that she's not smiling enough. And even though male superheroes in the MCU are generally not smiling in those promotional materials, uh, for some reason, people decided that they needed to have her smile more. And what's funny is that there's a scene in the movie where her character is asked to smile more and she responds to it. And so she's got, she did an interview about this and this is a great clip we're going to play you. There's a moment in this movie I wanted to ask you about because it felt like so much like art imitating life where there's this guy on a motorcycle and he tells Carol to smile. Mm -hmm. Of course, this echoed uh, a moment we saw on, on social media where when the poster was released mm -hmm. and there was this whole ridiculous to do about the fact that she wasn't smiling. Um, I, I imagine that wasn't a reshoot. That, I imagine that was in the movie. And no, that was just in the movie already. That was we in the movie. That. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was actually art predicting life. No, that's just a depiction of the female experience. That is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's just what it's like. So wasn't that, it didn't really bother me that much when I saw that that was the reaction because it's just how it goes. It was always in the script and you know, it, it's not an uncommon thing for women to hear. I think you'll ask any woman in this room and um, you know, she's, oh, don't be so sad, you know. Um, it's a very common thing to hear as a woman and so it, it doesn't surprise me at all that it was in social media. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, I think a lot of women can relate to that moment. Yeah, you're being let in. I'm sure you're probably like, people say that? Yeah, it happens. This is part of why art that depicts the female experience is so important because on one hand, for, for women and girls, it allows us to go, oh, I have that experience too. And for those that aren't in our bodies, can look at it and go, wait, that happens to you? We gotta do better. I'm not what you think I am. I love that line, we got to do better. And those female voices you heard were Brie Larson and then Anna Bowden, the director of the film, and then Brie Larson again at the end. And I just think that's exactly the kind of thing that we're looking for and excited about when it comes to this movie. So that's the pre-film controversy. <laughs> there will be some post-film controversy. So Kevin Feig, I don't know how to say his name, Kevin Feig is the overlord of the MCU. I don't know what you call him, but he's the executive producer overseeing this whole 21 movie story arc. I'm pretty sure overlord is not correct. I'm pretty sure it's not. <laughs> but he's the head of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Okay. So what he says is, from the beginning of my career, the notion of the damsel in distress was outdated. And when we started to make our own movies, we didn't want to fall into that trope. We wanted to avoid it as much as possible with Agent Carter, who's from Captain America, 
She's unbelievable capable at a time when it was very difficult to rise up in the ranks of the military. We really wanted to create these female characters that were as strong and as capable as the heroes. Now as we've continued to grow, that's gotten even more apparent to the point where they are the heroes. Literally right this second, Brie Larson is on the set of Captain Marvel. Evangeline Lilly has finished her role as the Wasp in Ant-Man and the Wasp and it will only continue to grow from there. The answer is nobody wants to see these movies more than me. And that's a movie to, and that's a testament to those films and to those actresses and to the world being ready and overdue to see these types of characters on the screen. And I think that quote is interesting because what he says is the world is ready. Yeah, I caught that too. And I feel like that's a weird thing to say. Yes. He's almost taking himself off the hook for He's waiting like until... congratulating the- us for catching up with him almost. Right. Like, it took you 21 movies to make a movie about a female superhero. And what you're saying is it's because the world wasn't ready. And all of this time, you were building up to it to try and get us ready. And I would argue we were ready 10 well, years ago. we may have been. But I can tell you some of these other people are not still ready yet. Obviously, so maybe he's right. some people are not ready yet because they're review bombing and they're looking for every excuse to not want to go see the movie. So maybe he's correct in that you wanted to wait until the movie made money. Because if you had had a female lead, second or third movie... And it bombed. Yeah. Then they're never doing that again. Yeah, and and it could at that point have kind of tanked the whole MCU, I guess. But uh, yeah, it's still worded in a weird way. I, I agree with you. I don't like that part. <laughs> <laughs> the movie Captain Marvel has two directors, Ryan okay. Fleck and Anna Bowden. You'll notice one of those is a female. There are eight writing credits on this movie, and six of those writers are women. Wow, that's a huge jump. Yes. And we went from zero to one right, to six. Exactly. That's amazing. So Carol Danvers, who is Captain Marvel, is an Air Force pilot. She starts as a normal human without superpowers. I don't have any spoilers because I haven't seen the movie. This is just okay. what I know about Captain Marvel. She has superhuman strength and durability, can fly at roughly six times the speed of sound, has like a seventh sense, which is kind of like a precognition, very similar to a spidey sense. Okay. Can discharge explosive blasts of radiant energy from her fingertips. She demonstrates the ability to absorb other forms of energy like electricity, which will magnify her strength. Okay. Up to maybe the force of a nuclear weapon. So stronger than the Hulk, stronger than Thor, stronger than Captain America. Listed in the cast in IMDb and who is in the previews, more representation. Obviously, female representation. There is uh, another pilot in the Air Force, at least in the beginning scenes, is going to be a black woman. Annette Bening plays a semi-major role in this movie, so she's an older female character. Um, And so just more women behind the scenes, more women on the movie, more kinds of representation in the film itself. And obviously you don't have the breakdown here of... No, we don't have screen time yet. Dialogue or anything like that either, so... Right. But we're anticipating... That she will have a great percentage of screen time in her own movie, yes. And that there will be nuanced development and all that good stuff. Yes. So yeah, I mean, in terms of behind-the-scenes representation, this movie is it's set in the 90s, as I've said very excitedly multiple times. And so they're going to have 90s music. And the soundtrack, actually, they're not pre-releasing it. Sometimes movies let the soundtrack out first. And Marvel has been, 
at least in Black Panther and sort of in Guardians of the Galaxy, kind of intentional about the way that they do both the soundtrack and the score. So for Black Panther, Kendrick Lamar wrote original songs and was in charge of the music for that movie. He was just nominated for an Oscar for one of those songs. Okay. Um, and that was an intentional kind of representation. And the same can be said in Captain Marvel. We have the first woman uh, composer who was scoring a superhero movie or a Marvel movie. And her name is Pinar Toprak. She's done video games and other movies in the past. And so she's performing and writing the score, or she did write the score for the Captain Marvel movie. Uh, the music in the movie kind of shattering a glass ceiling. So, oh, and I think that shows a real dedication to representation. Absolutely. It's not just checking a box. Yeah. We had a female superhero. Done. <laughs> exactly. And and I think it's I think it's cool. And she was actually interviewed by Variety um, about being the first female composer for a Marvel movie. And we'll play that clip. You're the first woman who's been hired to compose for a Marvel movie. What is it? Pressure? It is pressure, it is, but it's, it's a challenge. It's not a pressure. I think it's more like, uh, yeah, I don't want to let anybody down, and I want to just write the best music I can. And I think that's the thing with any project, no matter the size, just waking up and doing the best I can, telling the best story I can tell through music. So I do want to share some totally spoiler-free reviews, some early reviews that we have from some critics. And I just think it's really important to think about and discuss the way the movie is being received and the way the movie is being kind of talked about in the public discourse. Critic Wenli Ma wrote, We are still at the point where the visuals of such a powerful female hero are rare enough that its sheer existence makes you giddy. Not to the point yet where it's unremarkable. Exactly. Karen Kerr wrote, Captain Marvel has given us an engaging female character that does not come off as an empty agenda. Larson's magnetic performance paired with an entertaining buddy cop romp and some character moments makes this another strong entry into the MCU. Scott Menzel wrote, The final 30 minutes of Captain Marvel contains some of the most badass action sequences in any Marvel film to date, while also conveying a message that is inspiring to women of all ages. Peter Travers from Rolling Stone wrote, A dynamite Brie Larson gives hell to cosmic villains and sexist trolls. And an orange feline named Goose is the best movie cat ever. Everything in its DNA, from representation in front of and behind the screen, to its notions of empowerment, radiates our moment right now. Oh, that's a really interesting quote. Yeah, I think that's a really great one. Captain Marvel lives up to her billing as the heroine we need right now, even if she's not one fragile fanboys deserve. (laughs) That's Seth Nice. Those conversations are being had by people watching the movie, by professional critics, and of course, by anybody like me or you who goes in to see the movie, right? So I have a couple of questions, uh, and I just want to ask. (laughs) Go for it. Do you think it's fair to compare this movie directly to Wonder Woman? So comparing the movie, not the character. Yes. I I think it's fair. Because if you're just talking about the movie, Mm -hmm. I enjoyed this one more than I enjoyed that one. Yeah. I think that's totally fine. Because that is a personal preference and you're free to talk about that. Sure. If 
you leave and say, I like the way Gal Gadot looks in her outfit better than I like how Brie Larson looks in her outfit, that is a different conversation. Sure. So I think it depends on what exactly you're saying when you're making those comparisons, if it's fair or not. And what do you think about a critic in a review comparing Captain Marvel to Wonder Woman? A person writing and publishing a review making direct comparisons to Wonder Woman. I think it would be more fair for a critic to compare it to something else in the MCU. Yes. Because... I would agree with that. You're talking about apples and oranges at that point. Exactly. If you're comparing them to something, it should be to each other. Right. Because instead of saying compare it to a different Marvel movie, it kind of says direct comparison to Wonder Woman means it's a type, right? Like female superhero movie is a separate type. Yeah. Like, instead of saying this is a superhero movie and I'm going to judge it as such, I'm saying this is a girl superhero movie and I'm going to judge it as such. Does that make sense? And I only have two. So these are the two I have. So you don't care about these movies, right? Not that much. Not that much. Okay. But you would admit that this movie feels important. Yes. And I think just seeing representation of this kind is important. So... I don't think I've told you this yet, but a couple years ago, that reboot of Ghostbusters came out. Yeah. And you know how I feel about reboots. I do. But it's, for whatever reason, free on my Prime account. Yeah. So my daughter's watched it. And she loves it? And she loves it. It's a great movie. And now she (laughs) wants to be a Ghostbuster. And I don't know if she would have watched the old one with men in it if she would say that. Yeah. But she sees women being ghostbusters and now it's in her imagination that she can be a ghostbuster so i think i mean she can't but i understand that okay but she's three that's great and so i think in that way if we were to watch this movie at home in a few months when it's on some kind of streaming service (laughs) it would be an important moment for her and then therefore an important moment to me yeah i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that carol danvers is so powerful before she gets any superpowers and we see that they don't just say it we see it she learns to fly aircraft in the military she has to fly training missions because it's before women were allowed to fly in combat but she has these amazing skills and this immense amount of power even before she gets superpowers that make her the most powerful superhero in the MCU. I think the representation in front of behind the camera, the imagery, I just think that the movie itself is just, (laughs) I don't know, it feels important. And I I guess I'm, yeah. Right. She's not regulated to the girl role. Right. Sidekick role. Right. Growing up for us. Yeah. That's what female superheroes were. There, right? They were man, that girl. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. So even, just like you said, the title, Captain Marvel, not Marvel Girl, not Lady Marvel, Captain Marvel. And, I mean, there was a period of time in the comics where she was Miss Marvel, so I don't want to misrepresent that, but the importance of this movie is that she's Captain Marvel. She's not a corollary to a male superhero, and she is a leader and a powerful person in her own right. Have you seen the pictures of the little girls wearing the Captain Marvel costumes? I have not. You gotta look it up. Yeah, they're they're like lining up 
to see Brie Larson and she takes these selfies with these little girls who are like nine or ten and they're all dressed up like Captain Marvel and she seems so happy to take pictures with them and I think that that when I see those pictures it's really kind of amazing because they have you know this person they can dress up as and look up to and it's not just like oh I can grow up to be a superhero but you know I can grow up to be a pilot I can grow up to fly a plane I can grow up to just be powerful exactly that's cool it's very cool and sometimes they're wearing wonder woman costumes but it you know it, the idea remains <laughs> <laughs> oh make me over i'm all i want to be and i just want to add now that i've seen the movie um that it is basically everything i thought it would be and um, I cannot recommend it highly or strongly enough. I think the critics whose quotes that we read from are all right. I think it's great action sequences, great performances, great character development. I think it fits very nicely into the MCU, and it does a really great job of representing the 90s. It's also just really funny and really fun to watch. So um, I do think it's important, and I do hope that everybody gets a chance to watch it. Hey, Misty, yes. what's next in your lady life? So next week is spring break. I love that we have grown-up jobs where we still get spring break off. <laughs> I know. I don't know if I'd call what I do a grown-up job, but sure. So we will be taking a week off from the podcast because it's spring break. Yes. As adults. Yes. But we will be back. The next to, week. Yeah, to finish uh, Women's History Month yes. with a couple of awesome episodes. episode of Profess Hearst, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, what you'd like us to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. Which is extremely great. Super great. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at Profess Hers, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address, professors at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who's been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all those things, and we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend or an enemy. And remember, higher, further, faster.